Welcome back to the Decard Connect podcast. And this week, I'm really excited to be joined by, well, yet another in our class of disruptors, really. So Anna Douglas, who's co-founder and CEO of Sky Nano and co-founder and chief science officer of Aeroborn, is joining us today to talk about carbon reuse. And just a little bit of context here. Um, I, I guess we all know what CCUS is, but, but often in that discussion, we get kind of brought in, I think, really to focus on clusters and the sequestration of uh, CO2 underground or under the sea, whereas Aeroborn is really one of a number of disruptors in the CCUS space that allow for the transformation of CO2. So that's what we're, that's what we're here to talk about. Um, so Anna, let me kind of pass to you then. Tell us a little bit about your academic and your research background and really what, what's brought you to this moment in time where you're working with both Sky Nano and Aeroborn on, on CO2 reuse. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Anna Douglas. I co-founded Sky Nano in 2017, um, really as part of my PhD studies. So um, I, prior to pursuing a, a graduate degree, I did some work at NASA Glenn Research Center on um, aerogels, which are really exciting class of materials that are currently used to insulate the battery pack on the Mars uh, Curiosity rover. And it's really there that I got just super excited about nanotechnology and how material science can impact um, our world, you know, not just here on Earth, but also in space. And so I pursued a graduate degree in material science to work on um, energy storage, really with the conviction that, you know, our uh, renewable energy generation is, is actually really good. And, and battery storage is really today the big bottleneck to um, a sustainable future. But along the way, you know, we realized that the way that we produce a lot of materials that go into electrical energy storage like batteries are not very sustainable um, and it just puts a huge burden on the battery's performance to perform for a very very long time to offset that initial carbon burden and so i started looking at other ways to produce carbon materials that could be used for uh, for batteries for tires for uh, plastics coatings all kinds of things and came across this electrochemical uh, process that has been studied since the mid 60s and really had only been looked at as how to capture and, and store CO2 as solid carbon. But uh, throughout my PhD, I helped co-invent new ways to drive the formation of specific carbon structures from this process. And, and that's really where Sky Nano was born. Um, so we're a spin out of Vanderbilt. Uh, we've been funded by the Department of Energy, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Defense, and uh, some initial customers. But at Sky Nano, we're really focused on the production of highly valuable carbon structures like carbon nanotubes from CO2. And that, you know, that's very specific um, in terms of the market and, uh, and what we can do with the materials. We've partnered with some colleagues to form a joint venture called Aeroborn to deploy the core technology to make lots of other different kinds of carbon structures uh, like carbon black specifically because it's a different market. Um, it's more widespread. It's more high volume of a use case. And we just knew that this had to be more of a global effort in order to deploy this technology as fast as possible to make a really big uh, measurable impact on our carbon um, in the atmosphere. 
Okay, and then for the kind of lay people out there, you know, like me, you know, can you just give a kind of use case for both both the kind of carbon nanotubes that you mentioned, but obviously we're here to talk about Aerobonds so a little bit more on where might people recognize carbon black being used? You know, what, what's the different use cases for those? Yeah, so, you know, in both cases, the materials that we're making are, are used for additive based applications. So um, for, you know, for anyone who doesn't quite understand what that means, your tire, you know, that, that you drive or you ride in, in in your car or your bike or whatever, that has carbon in it. Um, and, and today it's carbon black. And tomorrow it will probably be carbon black, hopefully with a little bit of nanotubes in it. Um, and the reason for that is because, you know, we really need carbon to help electrically ground our tires to, to the ground. Um, if you didn't have it, when you get out of a car, you, you'd actually get a static shock. And um, there's a just a great way that carbon black and carbon nanotubes work together uh, in a lot of systems, tires being one, um, but your battery in, in your EV or in your phone or in your tablet or computer, that also has carbon in it. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways that carbon helps improve the performance of our materials and devices. One is electrical conductivity, and, and that's a big one. Carbon is conductive, and so it helps create conductive networks within materials and devices that need them. Another is just as a, as a uh, dye, as a colorant, right? So in a lot of plastics and, and rubber components that just need to be black for aesthetic reasons, carbon black is what's used uh, to color those. So it's really everywhere around you. A lot of people have no idea that this material even exists. Um, and yet you really can't go through a day in sort of, you know, modern society without interacting with a ton of different materials and devices that have carbon um, already embedded in them. Mm. What, what I loved when we first got in touch about doing this podcast was the, the idea that in at Sky Nano, you have this kind of premium product opportunity at the nanotubes and in Airborne you have the kind of mass market if you like I don't know if that's the right phrase but you know a kind of a real volume play both of those have this benefit of uh, a solid carbon outcome from CO2 capture mm. so I remember you saying to me that like that that was one of the big wins of the technology yes it's great to see CO2 being reused in, in any number of ways but What's so significant about, you know, having a solid carbon output in your opinion? And, and just tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that's a great, uh, a great point. So the big benefit of a solid carbon product is that it is not re-emitting CO2 in its life cycle. And I say that slowly because I want everyone to hear it. It is not re-emitting CO2 in its life cycle. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a lot of attention and a lot of effort being put towards, um, you know, renewable fuels that are made from CO2. Um, they're called a bunch of different things, renewable fuels, e-fuels, all different kinds of things. Um, and that is great. And we will probably need that for aviation applications for quite some time. Um, outside of that, you know, it, it is hard to justify making other things from CO2 that would re-emit CO2 in their life cycle. It's not permanent storage, you know, and there's been enough scientists uh, who have told us at this point, we need to start taking CO2 out of the atmosphere and permanently storing it in order to get uh, our climate under control and avoid going, you know, beyond two degrees uh, Celsius, you know, above pre-industrial levels. And so what that means for us at Aeroborn and at Sky Nano, we're really focused on solid carbon products 
and particularly those that displace products that are conventionally petroleum derived that emit CO2 in, in their life cycle, in their, um, in their production. Um, but then also, you know, go into applications that have the potential for energy savings. So things like batteries, tires, efficient coatings, things like this that can actually help improve the performance of conventional devices, you know, that, that really have a pretty meaningful impact on sustainability and on our overall carbon atmosphere. Um, when you take all of that into consideration, you know, the production, the offset of, of producing conventional materials, and then the life cycle overall, you know, it's, a, it's actually a pretty impactful um, way to to impact the environment mm. uh, and, and have a pretty measurable impact on carbon. I think it's really interesting to that most of the time when we hear people talk about permanent sequestration, the, the kind of anxiety is all about, well, can those reservoirs, can those holes in the ground, if you like, really prove that they can hold CO2 there for hundred years plus permanence, you know, mm-hmm. and, and actually there's something so neat about why not sequester it in the things we use, you know, why Absolutely. not sequester it in products we need and, as there's a kind of neatness to that as a solution that I think can can grab people's attention. Absolutely. And, you know, when we talk about permanence, this is very stressful, right? We, we typically talk about, you know, you mentioned 100 years. I often see, you know, things like a thousand years permanent. How, how would you ever measure that? And how would you feel so confident when you're putting CO2 into a reservoir that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there will be no leakage from that reservoir? why would we put that stress on ourselves? Let's just make things from carbon, right? Let's just make products from CO2. And a lot of folks are doing this. Um, and so why not? And I think a big you know, push that we have at, at Aeroborn is really to make products from CO2 that compete, uh, that are cost competitive with conventional products and materials. Um, and therefore, you know, there's really not a huge reason not to use them. Um, as long as they perform similarly to conventionally made materials and these markets are growing, we need more ways of, of making these materials anyways. It's a win-win-win. Talk us through and, and bear in mind, there are the simple folk like me who just, you know, <laughs> we don't have the same same kind of scientific background. So, so walk us through this process. You mentioned that it's not a, the process in itself is not new. It's been around for 50, 60 years. So Tell us about this, you know, how, how does it work and, and how you've developed it beyond the original you know, process you came across? Yeah, definitely. So um, we are relying on an electrochemical dissociation of a carbonate based salt. And there's a lot of big words in there, but uh, basically at its core, our uh, chemistry relies on a, a carbonate salt. So very similar to baking soda. Uh, that's a carbonate salt. And, you know, we dissociate that into carbon and oxygen and what's left is, is a metal oxide. And that's actually what's responsible for a chemical absorption of CO2 to regenerate that carbonate salt. So that's the chemistry. Um, and that in itself has been around, you know, since the mid sixties and, and our very unique take on this is the specific electrode architectures that are required to drive the formation of specific carbon structures. And what I mean by that is, you know, for a while people had, had been studying this technique to make all different kinds of carbon structures, but there wasn't really a great deal of understanding on, on how to control those on how to drive, you know, carbon nanotubes versus carbon black versus carbon fibers or or whatever it is. Um, You know, a lot of folks just looked at the basic chemistry or the basic electrochemistry 
and we approach this from a very strong material science and material synthesis background and that's i think what's what's very unique and, and that's where a lot of our intellectual property um is around congratulations i think i managed to follow that but interesting so the kind of the takeaway from that is that one of the key differences is is the being able to properly predetermine the nature of the structure that you're creating from that from that process and that's what sets it apart from what was happening before that's right that's right yeah. okay well um and one thing you mentioned before you were talking about the process was this kind of can you create products that are cost competitive so we're going to talk in a moment about the stage of development that you're at, but what's that looking like in terms of um, product compared with existing product? You know, how is that cost comparison? So that's, you know, it's been a, a pretty big driver for any market that we look at, you know, how can we compete on a cost per cost basis, provide customers with a product that is the same cost as what they're using or even less to help with help with switching decisions. Um, but that's really enabled by the fact that, you know, our only inputs are CO2 and renewable energy. And so what that means for us right now is we're selecting uh, CO2 offtake partners who have incentives to, to get rid of their CO2, right? So this may be either just they've made public commitments to net neutrality or they're geographically located in areas where there exists a carbon tax or a carbon tax is coming. Um, and, you know, we're looking for really low cost uh, renewable electricity. So we're, we're very specific on site selection uh, of where we choose to locate based on the availability of, of those resources. And beyond that, you know, we've got a lot of freedom and a lot of room to work. Um, a lot of electrochemical techniques to convert CO2 into solid carbon products will have very similar uh, constraints, right? So a lot of them will need CO2, ideally from a freely available source or someone who's willing to pay to offtake their CO2 um, and low cost renewable electricity. So, you know, for anyone who's uh, site planning, city planning out there, <laughs> these are resources that you might want to have around uh, to have some really exciting startups come uh, move to your region. That's a good point, actually, isn't it? You know, if you want to be a, the, the new location maker for kind of carbon management, carbon tech disruptors, it, it is that heady combination of access to the problem as well as access to the cheap renewable fuel that, that's going to make the difference. That's right. Um, okay, well, so tell us then um, the stage of development you're at. So, so both in terms of, you know, process, what's proven, what scale, but also a little bit about the team. What road are you on at the moment? Yeah, so at this point, we've got um, a pretty strong team of um, three founders and, and one, I would sort of say, late stage founder, first employee. Um, but so we are a, a team really of very diverse backgrounds. So um, the co-founders in Airborne are, um, you know, myself, very, very strong science background, very technical. Um, and then we've got a really great marketing uh, background on board who serves as our CEO. So he's done a lot of marketing efforts with, you know, really exciting companies like Nike and Tesla. And um, so that's, that's a really good fit for us. Um, and then at the same time, we also have a co-founder who spent the majority of his career um, as a global VP for Shell. Uh, and so, you know, he worked for a very long time, I think did very, very well at Shell, worked his way up the ranks and, you know, realized at some point 
I got to do something positive for the environment. You know, he's just been around um, and, and knows just so well how to take something, maybe not necessarily from zero to one, but from one to a hundred, you know, how to scale things fast and, and deploy technologies globally. Um, that's really where his strength is. And so it's just such a high octane team. And then um, our first First, uh, sort of non-founder early employee um, was actually an early investor in Aeroborn, and he's got a really strong legal background, really, really strong uh, personal conviction to do something positive for the world. And so there's just this great mix of, uh, you know, personal passion, personal conviction with skills that are really needed for uh, these kinds of technologies to, to come to fruition. So that's a team. Um, we are growing. We are um, certainly looking for, you know, partners. So, so we uh, partner with an engineering firm to do some of the uh, basic engineer design, um, taking, you know, from where we are today, which is um, proof of concept, scientific uh, discovery has, has already been done. We've demonstrated, you know, the, the basic technology at a lab scale. We've got a working prototype. Um, it works. It's awesome. We can actually start to uh, partner with folks who have a CO2 uh, challenge to, you know, kind of take their unique blend of CO2 output as an input to our process and see what kind of carbon products we get out. Um, so that is a partnership that we offer to uh, CO2 emitters right now. And, you know, really just looking for that first um, pilot plant. So, so that will happen next year. Uh, we're working with a um, development uh, and engineering firm in the Netherlands to, to build a pilot plant there um, as sort of a first demo unit. And um, that'll really be, you know, kind of the first step towards, towards rapid scaling for this effort. So it's a very modular technology. We can, we can scale very modularly. And so for that effect, you know, once we kind of get the first demo done um, and learn as much as we can, you know, it should actually be a pretty quick scaling effort from there. And the kind of timeline for the Netherlands demo plant, what, what's currently on the, I know we all know in the last 18 months has shown us that things can change. Thank you, COVID. Um, but <laughs> what's the timeline to that demo plant? Yeah, so we're looking to start the engineering work uh, to designing that demo plant um, actually late January. And it should be, you know, fully built and, and working by uh, the end of the summer of next year. Well, pretty rapid timeline. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty rapid. So let, let's just take a step back though and, and talk about these kind of proof of concept studies. Talk to me about like what, what does a proof of concept study look like? What should I expect of that? And are there particular sectors, particular manufacturing bases that you're, you know, kind of really eyeballing to work with at this point or is it across the board? These are good questions. In terms, I, I will start, I guess, with the first one uh, and then go to the second answer. Um, so in terms of the ideal uh, customer or the ideal partner for us, you know, we offer a solution that can really help hard to abate sectors. And that's relatively unique, right? And so there's a lot of technology solutions that can help folks who just, you know, need to switch to a more renewable energy source. Um, that's not, you know, we offer something that's that's much more difficult than that. Um, and so for those folks that, you know, I'm not really sure that that we would be the best fit uh, for us, you know, the really big fit is for hard to abate sectors, you know, things like steel, cement, um, energy production, you know, that's not switching to renewables anytime soon. Things like this, where, you know, we can take essentially any kind of CO2 output as an input to our process. Um, 
And we've got a really wide range of what can work. So anything from, you know, a really highly concentrated CO2 source that, that does exist in some places, uh, particularly across the EU, all the way to, you know, a more dilute source. So, you know, things like, um, the flue gas off a natural gas power plant, I think is something in the ballpark of 10, 10 to 12% CO2. That's fine. Um, so we can take, you know, really dilute sources up to really concentrated sources. And what we would do, how we would work with a, an initial partner is, you know, we would say, well, well, what do you want, right? They probably want to know, can you take all of our gas? Uh, do we need to do any kind of pre-treatment before, you know, before it goes to Aeroborne? Or can we just take it as it is in its entirety uh, and run it through our system and then what comes out? And so that's really where our proof of concept study is centered on. You know, we would take, um, we would start with a synthetic blend. So all we would ask for a partner is just tell us what kind of gas blend you're interested in. That may be 10% uh, CO2, 20% nitrogen and the balance oxygen or, or, you know, whatever it is, we would say, just tell us that that's all the data we need. Um, and we'll run it through our system and, and we'll see what we get. We'll see, you know, what comes out, if there are any constituents that are problematic. Um, and if there are, you know, we'll do some digging on, on how we might remedy that, how we might get rid of those before they go through our system. And that's kind of the basic uh, understanding of how an initial proof of concept would work. And then we would work together with that partner to determine, you know, what kind of business relationship is, is most amenable to them. For some folks, they may be able to use the, the output carbon in their process, in their product, right? So things like cement, right? For example, often are, are looking at carbon additives to increase strength. So that may be a really great fit where, where you know, they're more of a, a licensor. They can just take the technology, avoid their own CO2 emissions and use the end products. But there may be other customers, you know, like a power plant, for example, who don't really have any uses for, uh, for carbon black. Um, and so then we would go set up on site, right? And, and we would take their CO2 emissions and then we would be responsible for the final product. And so, you know, it really kind of starts with this proof of concept study of what can we do with your output and, and how does that work? And then we would move into an engineering phase of, you know, okay, how much, how much CO2 are you outputting and, and, you know, how much would you like for us to get rid of? And a lot of folks, particularly in very heavy emitting industries are well aware that it's probably gonna take, you know, a, a puzzle of a few different solutions to fully decarbonize. And so, you know, we would then just look at, well, what balance do we need to take care of? Um, and then move into an engineering phase of, you know, okay, let's design a, a, a demo unit at, you know, a, a plant of interest um, and kind of go from there. But, you know, this kind of goes back to what I had mentioned earlier, really the resources that we would need for a site are just a source of CO2 and a source of low cost renewable energy. So as long as we can access both of those, you know, there's really no limitations on, on what sectors, what customers um, and what CO2 emitters we can help. And you mentioned needing to understand the nature of the kind of flue gas mix. Um, and this has come up in a couple of things before, and this is a total layman's question, but you were talking about it in terms of the, the density of the CO2, the, the actual kind of the mix of it. But I know I've heard from other, um, some CO2 reuse and other companies just doing capture that there are other particulates, other things that can cause issues so why does that matter so much to these different types of technologies and again um, apologies to listeners as much as to Anna because I'm sure many people know this but why why would those different particulates or uh, constituent parts matter so much you know certainly every CO2 
capture or, or utilization technology is different, right? Every single one uh, may be affected by a different kind of um, impurity or particulate or, or whatever that might be. You know, something that, that we're very specific about is, is we like a dry CO2 source. So um, because we're working with electrochemistry, once you put water into electrochemical systems, things tend to start to go awry. Um, water is pretty straightforward to, to remove from uh, gases, right? You just condense it um, and, and you can pull it out. So that's pretty straightforward for us. In terms of other technologies, you know, particularly for direct air capture, I can imagine for a lot of these, you know, you're looking at uh, absorbents that may be in sort of porous frameworks, if, if those can kind of become plugged for, for lack of a better word, uh, with larger particulates, that's very problematic. Um, you know, that's not something that, that we have to deal with at Aeroborne, but certainly, you know, we are still in, in relatively early stages of assessing exactly, you know, for each customer, it's just going to be a little bit different, the different kinds of output gas um, and what constituents or, or impurities may be in those um, and how we have to uh, address those. Thank you. Thanks for putting up with uh, that kind of a... <laughs> It's not GCSE. as important, it's actually very important. <laughs> I feel like I'm doing a, a GCSE in carbon capture with you, but thank you. <laughs> um, so, so let's move on to something slightly different then. There is always a, a bit of a kind of happy tension, a kind of useful tension whenever there's new technology being innovated. Well, in this case, the manufacturer wants and needs innovative tech to move forward, but often will you always, you know, you will always find some people who are willing to step up, some companies that step up to being that early adopter and that early tester, but always companies that are hesitant about perceived risk or challenges. And I'm just, I'm interested to understand, like how, so far, how are you encountering that? And how are you working through that with, with kind of potential uh, customers? Great question. Um, you know, I think a, a big thing that, um, doesn't necessarily get brought to light as much as is the realization that, you know, this can be a good business decision. And this is a good business decision. Um, many heavy emitting industries are realizing that they're at a massive risk uh, in terms of, you know, just one stroke of a pen and carbon policy or, or carbon taxing uh, changing, right, in a lot of different geographies where we may not have even anticipated this moving so quickly. And, you know, it's just good business to start de-risking that position as early as possible. And the reality is, of course, everyone's going to want a technology that's ready to go the minute they need it. They don't exist today. That's where we're at. They don't exist today. Um, we need them to exist at scale as soon as people need them. And so, you know, a lot of these industries are at just a huge risk, um, you know, you're talking like a carbon, a relatively low carbon tax could take away, it's only 50% of, of many of these industries revenues, leaving them quite literally underwater. They have to be investing now. Um, and so I think we are seeing a lot, a lot of folks doing that once they realize what, what kind of risk they could be in. Um, and for those who, who don't, you know, realize that yet, it's just good business. You know, you don't have to come at this from an altruistic standpoint. Certainly we appreciate those who do. Um, but it's just good. It's just a good business decision uh, to start investing early in these technologies, particularly because other people are um, and you don't really want to get left behind. Right. And so what we're seeing, you know, as I kind of walked through how we would work with an initial customer, there's a lot of development that happens 
very specifically for a specific CO2 output, right? And so if you're a heavy emitter industry and, and you're kind of looking around and seeing what's out there, don't you want to know that something is out there specific towards your CO2 output, right? Something that has been very specifically tailored towards what you have to offer in terms of CO2 gas output and, and how someone can take it in. Um, and so investing early in these technologies, Aeroborns and others, um, is just going to be really key to a stable business economy moving forward. Um, I'm always interested to hear from companies on, on all sides of this kind of issue of industrial decarbonisation about what's needed next. And inevitably, there's some mix of, well, the banks need to do this and the politicians need to do this. And so what's your mix? What is it that you need to see for companies like Airborne, but not just Airborne, mm -hmm. to, to really flourish? Yeah, so I would say there's four. There's four big things that need to happen, and they come from a, a variety of stakeholders, as you have already mentioned. Um, and, the, and the four big things that really, really need to happen, um, two are from industry and, and two are from government. And the two from government are, you know, of course, we need more policies that help drive new innovations, um, new innovations and in decarbonizations and, and, and really incentivize new technologies to come to market. And this doesn't look like what the existing policies look like, right? So the existing policies often only incentivize folks when they get to a really, really large scale, right? So 45Q in the US has been a landmark policy uh, for helping decarbonization efforts, but you only can start to get the credit if you're decarbonizing like tons and tons and tons and tons of CO2. Um, and so that's really hard for early stage companies to rely on at all until they get very, very big. So, it, you know, it certainly helps incentivize big companies to decarbonize, but it doesn't help newer, earlier startup technologies really break into the marketplace. So I would say more flexible policy uh, is a big one that, that we just need. Um, the other thing from, from governments that we can really use is be the example, right? If you're buying um, a fleet of cars, for example, make sure those cars, not just REVs, but have you know low carbon components as as part of their makeup. You know low carbon composites, low carbon tires, low carbon interior, etc. Um, set an example for what the supply chain looks like. You know, and it's not just cars; it's everything um, that a government may procure. Set the example of you know, hey, we're going to incentivize lower carbon suppliers in the supply chain from A to Z, right? From the very start of a product to where we're procuring it, everyone in that supply chain, you know, has got to be as low carbon as possible. And you don't need to pay like a huge premium for it, but you know, if you're saying apples to apples, we're within 10, 20% of the cost of a conventional product, the low carbon product's gonna win. Um, so I would really love to see that from governments. And, and I certainly, we've got a few ideas on how that can happen. And then, you know, certainly I would say at the same time for, for industries, number one, invest early. You got to invest early in these decarbonization technologies to make sure that one is going to be ready for you when you really, really are at risk um, and you really need it. So of course, partner early, invest early. Um, and then the other one is, is also for businesses, particularly those that have made a big public commitment to uh, net neutrality or decarbonization in some um, effort, you know, look at your whole supply chain. Um, 
2020 and 2021 have taught us a lot about how vulnerable supply chains are just in terms of you know labor and availability of materials throughout entire supply chains well we should really start to re-examine them in terms of carbon footprints at every stage as well too right and so if you're a big uh, car manufacturer and you're getting ready to switch to to a fully electric fleet that's great don't put dirty tires on your car then right so you know make sure every component of your supply chain is as clean as possible um you know and consumers are really starting to figure this out i think a lot of consumers are, are voting with their dollar in terms of sustainability and, and we've seen this shift even in the absence of a lot of policy and so i think there's a lot that you know both stakeholders both industry and government can play in this but you know as consumers we can also say, hey, I'm not going to buy an EV unless it also has low carbon composite materials as part of its makeup. Um, so, you know, really having a good understanding of, of the whole supply chain, I think is pretty critical. Yeah, and of course, one of the things that can help drive that, which I guess there's starting to talk about in Europe, I don't know if it's a discussion yet in North America, is labeling or labeling is a very consumer level way of looking at it. But those decisions by a willing consumer, like so someone like me is a willing but probably fairly poorly educated consumer a lot of the time on, on things like that. But it, but if you know, if you when you're buying your new car or you're buying whatever it is you're buying, you can clearly see what the kind of distribution of CO2 and, and other emissions are across. I don't know, I think I think that's the game changer as well, isn't it? All right. Well, Anna, thank you so much. I mean, really fascinating to talk to you. Also interesting to hear from someone involved in this early stage tech who also has this background at NASA because this was the, the same for Tara Karimi at Semvita and there's some really <laughs> interesting kind of people I'm coming across who have these kind of multiple reasons why they've kind of gone down a certain path or the kind of science and uh, materials that they were exposed to in other circumstances all becoming part of this picture so really fascinating thank you so much thank you so much for having me it's been great fun many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast we work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.